Welcome to Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about Mi'kmaq people, politics, land and water. I'm Glenn Wheeler. Thank you for supporting Mi'kmaq Matters through Patreon or email funds transfer. These are strange and difficult times. I hope you and those dear to you are well and stay well. Well, Aliho. Like many of you, I've been using lockdown time to catch up on a few things. One of the things I've been doing is reading Decolonizing Katumkuk Mi'kmaq History by Michael G. Wetzel. And what that is, uh, reading from the cover page here, it's a thesis submitted in the partial fulfillment of the requirement for the degree of Master of Laws to Dalhousie University in 1995. And it's been a mind-blowing experience reading this thesis. It's, uh, it has a lot of history there, some of which I wasn't familiar with, an encyclopedic collection of history about the indigenous history of Newfoundland and Labrador, mostly the island of Newfoundland. And it it takes on this the story that we were told in school that the Beothic were living happily in Newfoundland. The uh, the Mi'kmaq arrived with the Europeans with the French. The French gave the Mi'kmaq guns, and the Mi'kmaq used the guns to kill all the Beothic. So the story went. And of course, uh, as we're becoming more and more familiar. Uh, with the stories of uh, John Payton Sr. and the other English settlers, it was they who killed the Beothic, not Mi'kmaq people, whom uh, it seems clear now had a, um, a friendly relationship and perhaps even intermarriage with the Beothic. So this thesis is provides a different framework, a different framework for looking at our history from an indigenous point of view. And that's what's so powerful about it. So I was interested in uh, Michael G. Wetzel. I hadn't uh, really heard of him before I came upon upon this uh, thesis. And um, he has an interesting uh, history, um, having been born in the United States uh, into the Shawnee tribe and living as a Mi'kmaq person uh, here in Newfoundland since the early 70s. And um, he's been working on Mi'kmaq stuff since that time. I see from the resume here, began working for the uh, Mi'kmaq elders on the history of use and occupation of Newfoundland in uh, 1971. And then in 73, he worked for the Native Council of Canada as a field organizer when not many people in Newfoundland were willing to identify as uh, as Mi'kmaq. And um, then he was uh, from 74 to 90, he worked for the Con River Bank Council, as it was then known, as the Director of Community Development, Government Negotiator, Land Claims Research Director, and General Administrator. And if you want to know how his work for the Con River Bank Council ended, you can look up the legal case online, the litigation, uh, wrongful dismissal litigation that uh, came from that time. So I, uh, I looked around and I saw that, uh, that Jerry Wetzel had a law office in Grand Falls, Grand Falls, Windsor for many years, but I found him in 
Ton River back in the Obagaic. He's semi-retired now, but still very passionate about the issues, about Mi'kmaq people in history. So I talked to him about the thesis and other things, and uh, I started by asking him about that uh, work in the early 70s, traveling around and talking to Mi'kmaq people. So here is our conversation with Jerry Wetzel. Basically, what it amounted to was none of the national indigenous organizations at the time even knew there were any indigenous people in Newfoundland and Labrador. They were under the impression that they had all been killed by European settlers. And uh, I said, no, you know, there were Mi'kmaq on the island, there were Inuits in Labrador. And so they hired me then to organize those communities. And um, so you'd traveled uh, around the province, uh, visiting people in, you know, I guess you probably were in Flat Bay and in the Cornerbrook area and all around. I was. I was all over the province of Newfoundland, and I was everywhere from Goose Bay to Nain, mm. in Labrador. Right. So then. Um, you, uh, after your MUN work, you went to, uh, you were working for, for Miobigeg as the Administrator of Policy Planning and Negotiations. And I think uh, you stopped doing that in about um, 1990, as I recall. And uh, you left in, um, shall we say, for these purposes, uh, 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 negative circumstances, um, and, um, and then went to Dalhousie to do a master's degree or to do a law degree i guess first did a law degree first yeah in 19 from 1990 to 93 i did the uh, regular llb degree and then in um, uh, the date on your thesis is uh, 1995 i think so probably that uh, was um, uh, uh, it took you uh, at least uh, probably a couple of years to put that together yeah, well, after I did the regular law degree, Dalhousie offered me a, you know, basically a fellowship to come back and do a master's. Uh, covered my uh, tuition, so uh, great. That's what I did. Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about the uh, the thesis. It's the title is decolonizing Katumkuk Mi'kmaq history, and for those. Many people, even though it's not been uh, published in book form, uh, it's available, uh, it's accessible online as a PDF, a PDF of uh, more than 400 pages. But surprisingly, many people, it would seem like a daunting thing to read a a lengthy thesis, but many people have. And uh, some people say it's it's the most uh, complete and incisive work we have on um, a sort of... um, a decolonized uh, history of uh, Katoom Cook. So let's talk about um, one of the topics you take on there, the Mi'kmaq mercenary myth. Um, Tell us uh, briefly what that is, the the mercenary myth. I'll call myself a semi-academic indigenous writer, all right, and researcher. Um, The, uh, you know, one of the things that happens when you start to research, say, you know, the history of the Newfoundland Mi'kmaq. The only thing you get are articles written by uh, non-Indigenous people. Uh, usually the articles are slanted toward making the colonization of Indigenous lands acceptable. And so in, on the island of Newfoundland, um, 
the, uh, the English writers uh, who came to Newfoundland or immigrants who came to Newfoundland um, had started a, I guess, a folk myth. Um, but not the writers, but a folk myth had been started earlier. The, writer, the English uh, story uh, history writers uh, that came to Newfoundland picked it up. And it became that you know, a story that when the English came to Newfoundland, there were no indigenous people here except the Beothics, and they killed them all. Therefore, they then possessed the whole island. They became, the English became, in a, in a sense, the indigenous people of the island of Newfoundland. The only problem with that is that the Mi'kmaq had been here before the English ever came. Uh, and you, you can find those sources even uh, you know, uh, from uh, some of Peyton's uh, um, journals, uh, where he, after he had captured uh, um, Mary March, uh, she had, he had tried to get some of the of Beothic history from her, and he recorded that she told him that, uh, and this was, I think, I'm not sure if it was Peyton or if it was um, uh, Cormac, uh, had told him that um, the, the Beothics and the Mi'kmaq had common villages in Newfoundland and apparently told him specifically in St. George's Bay, or what's now St. George's Bay. Um, in, in Mi'kmaq, it's Nunjiwani, it's called the Big Split. Um, and when you look at the geography of it, that's exactly what it is. It's a, a you know, major split in the um, shoreline of the west coast of Newfoundland. Anyway, uh, so there are other, you know, tidbits, snippets of uh, what I'll call indigenous history that was recorded from time to time. Um, so that was one that all the uh, English immigrants to Newfoundland who have written history about the Mi'kmaq Newfoundland completely avoided entering in the discussion that here you have a Beothic person telling the English person that the Beothics and the Mi'kmaq had common villages, which usually means they were intermarrying as well. Um, the, uh, you know, so, so you have this, this myth that starts up that, um, when the English killed off the Beothics, there were no other indigenous people. Therefore, they're the prime and only title holders in Newfoundland. Um, so then they develop another myth about why the Beothics disappeared. And they, they claim that the French brought Mi'kmaq to the island and offered a reward for Beothic heads to them. And, you know, that uh, is another add-on to the myth of... Uh, uh, basically e English sovereignty in Newfoundland with no indigenous rights anywhere left on the island. And it's interesting, uh, you mentioned the, the English fishermen and uh, of course uh, John Payton Sr. will be a name known to uh, many people. And uh, some of the Newfoundland uh, historians, one thinks of Ingeborg Marshall, who you, uh, you deal with her research in, the, um, in your thesis. Uh, she is one of the leading proponents of this view that the um, of uh, strife between Beothic and Mi'kmaq 
and she relied on her history on the very people uh, involved in violence against uh, the Mi'kmaq people, i.e. reports that uh, originated with John Payton Sr. Yeah, well, exactly. So here, so it's the same thing that just repeats itself. You have European immigrants relying on European immigrants for the truth about the colonization of Newfoundland, okay? And they rely on the very people who were killing the Biatics and probably would have probably killed the Mi'kmaq too if they could have. But you have to understand, and when you look at the geography of Newfoundland, the northeast coast of Newfoundland was the first place that uh, the English immigrants went to. The south coast of Newfoundland wasn't settled until the 1870s by English uh, fishermen. So one of the things that was, was apparent to the English uh, from their encounters with the French was that the French armed the Mi'kmaq. So while the Beatics didn't have any guns to shoot them down with or shoot back at them, the Mi'kmaq did. So they didn't bother the Mi'kmaq. You know, they went after the, the fishery and the salmon rivers on the northeast coast of Newfoundland, uh, to, you know, basically to take from a people who only had bows and arrows to defend themselves with. Hmm. So, you know, one of the, the things that pops out of the um, relationships between the Beothic and the Europeans, the English in Newfoundland, is that unlike the rest of Canada, where uh, First Nation people would bring in furs to trade and eventually trade some of those furs for guns and powder and shot, that didn't happen in Newfoundland. So there was always a, you know, I'll call it the, the armament imbalance between the English and the Beothics. Now, some of the other information that you asked about, um, you can find in um, a book called Micmac and Beothic. It was written by an ethnologist named Speck in 1914. Uh, he worked for the Museum of the American Indian in New York City and was funded to come to Newfoundland to collect information on what the old Mi'kmaq people could tell him about the Beothic. So he came to Newfoundland in 1914, spent a couple, I think a couple of years um, uh, on the train basically, uh, visiting older Mi'kmaq people in, in villages around uh, the head of St. George's Bay and Flat Bay and Steveville Crossing and actually Steve, Stevensville, I'll call it Stevensville. Stevens was a Mi'kmaq family name and Stevensville is what Stevenville used to be called after the Mi'kmaq family of Stevenses. But anyway, um, so he collected this information from people who were in their, according to him, in, in, in their late years, in their 70s or older at the time uh, that he came in 1914. So that brings, takes those people back to, you know, being born maybe in the 1740s, uh, I'm sorry, 1840s, um, uh, so it, it's interesting that the information he collected was from people who had probably, who, whose parents anyway, probably had some association with the Athic people. Mm. Um, I mean, there's lots of stories in, in Con River about, um, uh, it seemed to go back to the, maybe the 1820s when the Beothics had been basically uh, raided and dispersed. There were, there's lots of stories about uh, Beothic people scratching on the outside of a wigwam in Con River 
and and the old Mi'kmaq people there would leave food for them outside the wigwam, and the food would be gone in the morning after they uh, heard the scratching. Now, you know, one of the things that you know. You, you, you can't really knock on a wigwam, and scratching is the way you announce yourself when you come to someone's wigwam. Mm. Um, or, you know, calling out to them if you know them. Huh? And so the way the, uh, the Beathic uh, announced themselves was to scratch on the side of the wigwam. Um, but apparently they were uh, too timid to actually uh, go in and probably, well, may not have been able to speak Mi'kmaq, so they couldn't really announce themselves. Huh? Um, so you, if you look at Speck's book and you look at some of the information collected from uh, the Athic captives, um, you can see that the Athics themselves were saying that they had a relationship with, with the, the, the Tahoe book Mi'kmaq. And when you read Speck's book, you have, you have Mi'kmaq telling Speck what they knew about the association between um, the Athic people and Newfoundland people. So you have two sources of information. So back in, in you know 1914, when Speck was collecting this information, there was no you know talk of uh, land claims and indigenous rights and all that sort of thing. So the information Speck was getting was unfettered and unslanted, you know, uh, oral history from the older Mi'kmaq people he talked to. Hmm. So that maybe the, that may, that's a good segue into um, into the Drew case. Uh, the Drew case. Uh, many people will be familiar with the um, with the uh, uh, claim for um, some Aboriginal uh, uh, title over the Beta Nord Wilderness Area in the uh, that many people from Yobigeg uh, had used over the years. And as we know, the trial division. Uh, of the Newfoundland and Labrador Supreme Court um, was backed up by the Court of Appeal in Newfoundland. Um, and the Court of Appeal said, uh, agreed with the trial judge and said, uh, we are not persuaded that the trial judge committed any error in finding that the Mi'kmaq were not in Newfoundland at the date of European contact. So, you know, I have your your 500 page uh, nearly thesis on my desk with, uh, you know, much detail about uh, history to the contrary. Um, so how can it be that uh, the uh, courts in Newfoundland can uh, arrive at that conclusion? Well, the only thing I can tell you is I, no, I haven't read the Drew case for, for some time now, but I do recall that the expert witness that was called by uh, the Mi'kmaq side um, was not an expert in the history of the Takunko Mi'kmaq, but had written a PhD thesis on the history of the Nova Scotia Mi'kmaq. So he was discredited yeah, in the in, in the cross examination. So when an expert witness gets discredited, then you know whatever information he has to provide is. You know, discredited as well. Hmm. Um, now, so, you you had left you had left uh, your position with uh, Meowbigeg, uh, the Meowbigeg band at by the time of the Drew case. But um, your thesis uh, came out in '95, and the decision from the Newfoundland from the trial division was in 2000. So, 
you had collected that information, and we, there are uh, authorities quoted in your thesis. Uh, one who comes to mind is uh, Charles Martin, I guess you pronounce his name, M-A-R-T-I-J-N, who passed away in uh, 2016, but would have been available uh, 16 years or so previous, was not called. Um, so it would appear that experts were available um, if contacted. So what, what went wrong there? Oh, well, they just didn't bother. Whoever, whoever organized the case just didn't bother to really go after the people that really had um, information about the history of the talking about female people. Charles, Charles Martin is, you know, from what I can see, is one of the foremost uh, writers on the history of the Mi'kmaq in the um, Gulf of St. Lawrence. And uh, uh, according to, to him and according to some, some Mi'kmaq elders that I talked to some time ago, I mean, even the name Unamagi was a word that was used to include Newfoundland, St. Pierre Miquelon, the Magdalens, and Cape Breton. Unamagi meaning the foggy lands. Um, so the, uh, you know, Charles Martin's, uh, main research topic was how the, the Mi'kmaq who lived, well, I can't say they lived in Cape Breton, but the Mi'kmaq who used Cape Breton, Newfoundland, the San Pierre Miquelon and the Magdalens as, uh, different sources of, um, hunting, different places to hunt and gather. Uh, at different times of the year, uh, you know, uh, the, the old Mi'kmaq people seem to um, move around quite freely, you know, probably moved around more than we do now. I mean, the Drew case unfortunately remains as the, you know, definitive statement at this point of the courts in Newfoundland, saying the Mi'kmaq were not in Newfoundland at the date of European contact. And of course, Ray you know, in a in terms of asserting Aboriginal rights or, or land claims or whatever, that's a, you know, that's a major obstacle. So do you think there's a way to get beyond the Drew case? Is there a claim that could be brought uh, at this time um, with a more reasonable chance of success? Um, uh, I mean, I, I guess the Drew case might have gone a different way if different people had been called, but uh, we were left with that. So what can we do now? Is there a case that could be brought? Well, what can be done now? Number one, the Drew case didn't include any archaeological information about Mi'kmaq in Newfoundland. You know? um, so that's, uh, that's you know, really an important part of the case. I mean, the case was brought prematurely to begin with because there wasn't enough archaeological archaeological evidence uh, to build on, to build a case on. You know, so you, if you had archaeological evidence, that would all be pre-European contact evidence. And from that evidence, you could then start to look at the, uh, the early European uh, recordings of uh, Mi'kmaq people around uh, the south coast or west coast of, of uh, Newfoundland or Tagalog. And, and then use, use those uh, reports to key into some of the archaeological information and sites that you would have had. Problem, part of the problem is too, is that Newfoundland archeologists have completely bought into the Micmac mercenary myth. You ask any Newfoundland archeologist, and we've had some workforce, and we found some, some what you call sites that show 
evolution from making stone points to European trade goods, Mi'kmaq sites, that show that Mi'kmaq people were obviously here making stone points before Europeans came. And then when Europeans came, they, you start to find European trade goods in the same site. But anyway, um, so, so do, you think there's, do you think there is a, uh, an area of the island that would be uh, better uh, as a subject of a land claim? Where we have the south coast, we have the southwest coast, the west coast, Bay St. George area. Um, so would there, you know, maybe the Bay St. George area would be um, a good location for a claim since we do seem to have some compelling evidence for from that part of the, the island. Well, I mean, if, if you have compelling archaeological evidence, yeah. yeah. And uh, I would think that uh, the, the West Coast uh, might be one of the areas that um, would be, you know, a prime archaeological research area. Uh, because everything from Mi'kmaq oral history tells us that the way the Mi'kmaq got to Newfoundland, one of the ways was to come across from Cape Breton through, through St. Paul's Island. And where they landed was around what's now called Port of Basque, Port of Basque. And uh, so there. But it sounds like uh, from, from what you know, we don't yet have the archeological evidence from that. We have the oral history, but not the archeological evidence to back up the oral history from what you know. That, that's, that's correct. And uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, none of uh, you know, the Mi'kmaq leaders have made any effort to uh, you know, try to get grants to start that kind of research. Um, you know, and, you know, if they asked me about it, I would tell them, do not hire a Newfoundland archaeologist. Hire an archaeologist from Nova Scotia or Quebec, somebody who can give you a real independent opinion about what they're finding, because the Newfoundland archaeologists we have used would never say academically in any kind of article or report that they found a site where there were stone points made by the Mi'kmaq. They will not say it, even if it's right in front of their face. Well, Jerry, uh, thanks for telling us about your research and uh, telling us where, where we had to go from here. So thanks for all your work over the years. Thanks for talking to us today. And Willalem. Willalem. Numultus. Numultus. Jerry Wetzel, author of Decolonizing Katumkuk Mi'kmaq History. By the way, if you know of a more accessible place online to get the thesis, uh, please uh, let us know. Unfortunately, uh, the thesis is not published as a book, as we might prefer, so that it could be taught in the schools and university courses. But what we have right now is a 475-page PDF document. But it's... Um, it's well worth the effort to find it and read it. And that's it for the program. Thanks for your continuing financial support through patreon.com forward slash Mi'kmaq Matters and through email funds transfer, mi'kmaq.matters at gmail.com. Mi'kmaq Matters is produced by Allison Baker. This is Glenn Wheeler saying... Look after yourselves. I'm